0: Good evening, my name is Dixon, I'm an alcoholic. At this point in my life, I hope I'm an alcoholic, because if I'm not, I've wasted 34 years of my life coming to these damn meetings. I um, want to thank the committee for having, well, the extreme good judgment to invite me (laughs) here tonight. It includes those you just saw, uh, Rich and Don and Dennis, Darcy, Annie, Greg, Dan, Warren, Lisa, Mihan, Christine, Deborah, Larry, Bill B., Bill M., thank you all for your service and thank you all for being so kind to me and my wife and greeting us when we came here, both in person and by by letter. And a special thanks to uh, Mary Ann and Arch for being so kind and considerate to me and my wife during our short stay here. We we love Vancouver. This is our third trip here. And we spent the afternoon uh, going over to North Vancouver, uh, where, among other things, you can find many good places to eat, particularly if your preferences go toward Greek
1: <laughs> or sushi. <laughs> uh,
0: now, Atlanta and Georgia are not thought to be cutting-edge communities, but we've had sushi for a very long time. We just didn't know any better. We just called it bait. (laughs) Uh, uh, By the way, I want to apologize or at least explain uh, the vest Um, I'm a lawyer by trade and it's kind of a uniform but more importantly than that at the end of my drinking I knew I was a a very high bottom drunk (laughs) oh I I did Uh, I always had to hold in my silk tie when I threw up I got around that by wearing a vest, and the vest held in the tie. (laughs) Except that the vest created other problems. I used to stagger into the men's room, stumble over to the latrine, open my vest, pull out my tie, and pee in my pants. (laughs) I don't want to frighten you, but I did come here armed with notes. Um, this is for your benefit more than mine. Uh, in addition to being an alcoholic, I'm also a, a Celtic mystic. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the Irish, a Celtic mystic is an Irish bullshitter. Uh, And I brought these notes so you don't have to stay here and listen to me till one or two in the morning. (laughs) In which case you'd be walking out with just happy with your bargain, getting five CDs for (laughs) ten (laughs) dollars. The like most of you, I uh, I drank alcohol. Uh, Because in the beginning, it worked. It did what it was supposed to do. In my case, in my late teens and early 20s, it got me over the rough spots in life. It uh, made me comfortable talking with girls. A little bit later, as I got into law school, um, I went through college and law school on scholarships. My, My dad was a steel worker. Most of the people I went to college, and especially law school with, were the sons and daughters of judges and doctors and bankers. And the Catholic Archdiocese of Newark was kind enough to place Seton Hall Law School on Clinton Street in Newark, right next to a tavern. (laughs) How considerate could they be? and we would adjourn after classes next door to that tavern and I'd be there drinking with my fellow classmates and and they'd all be talking about their prep school lacrosse team. I didn't go to no prep school I didn't didn't play lacrosse I went to a small parochial high school and I played stickball in a playground but after a couple of drinks what the hell I played lacrosse too <laughs> and although it worked for a long time there was a point in time when it stopped working I had used alcohol into the beginning of my career as an attorney <laughs> and um, Sometime in January of 1977, I didn't get sober till May, but I went to an AA meeting just to get uh, some pamphlets to prove I had been there. And come home with the pamphlets, and of course I came home drunk, staggered into the kitchen, threw the pamphlets on the table in front of my wife, and insisted that the damn thing didn't work. <laughs> This allowed me to continue drinking for another several months and during this time is when alcohol stopped working. I remember I was preparing for a trial and as I usually do I prepare for trial in those days by putting myself on half rations of liquor for two weeks before trial. And I went to trial all prepared. And I got to the courtroom and I found out that the a prosecutor was going to ask for a continuance because his chief witness a police officer had been called up by his guard or reserve unit it would not be available for several weeks and he was going to ask for a continuance well I was furious <laughs> fury was the first reaction the second was frustration because I could not argue to that judge your honor I've had myself on half rations of liquor (laughs) for the last two weeks. Who do you think you are granting a continuance? (laughs) And my last reaction was terror because I recognized that I could not guarantee my conduct. I could not guarantee my condition three months from now. If you're going to put it off for a couple of days or until early next week, I could keep a lid on it. Three months from now, I had no idea what condition I would be in. And that's when the terror struck. Because I knew I could not control me. So I went back to the clubhouse I went to. was at Rebus. See, lawyers, everybody has their own problem. Lawyers have a barrier to recovery in many ways because alcoholism is a disease of consequences if you're an alcoholic who keeps drinking consequences are going to come upon you well lawyers make their living postponing diminishing eliminating consequences that's what we do we're experts at it and we can put off those consequences and meanwhile, the damage done by alcohol progresses because we haven't had to face them. I was lucky to have to come to face mine, and I wound up going back to the same place where I got the pamphlet. It's a place called Rebus. That's sober spelled backwards. And it was a clubhouse in Marietta, Georgia. And uh, you know those groups where they, where they love you till you can love yourself? Rebus didn't go for that stuff. <laughs> uh,
1: they
0: had people there. Uh, there was one guy there named Speedy, and uh, I walked in there for my first meeting and was still debating whether I really belonged there or not. And this is the mid-1970s, and Speedy died just about a year ago. But he came to me in the mid-70s, resplendent, in a lime green leisure suit. With white patent leather shoes and a matching belt and a buckle you could serve a turkey on. And he came over to me in that southern drawl of his and he said, You want what we have? Not right now. <laughs> and at this group, they have a process. The 12-step chairman in this place is in charge of getting you a temporary sponsor if you don't have one. I mean, even if you don't want one, uh, you'll have one before you leave there. And I had this fellow, uh, he was... Uh, what's the word he was inflicted on me <laughs> his name was Jim and he, he wasn't as smart as me and I spent the, most of my first year of sobriety explaining the true complexity of life to Jim <laughs> Jim said stupid stuff like uh I'm going down to Florida for a week and uh, not going people that go with me they're going to have booze and I'm taking a soccer oh by the way I, at the end of my drinking I had apparently coached a soccer team to a state championship
1: <laughs>
0: and I remember getting a letter from the state soccer association and reading it and going damn I must have been good
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but we went down to the and I kept telling I was, you know, the people are party people there's going to be beer around and you know, how am I going to stay sober down there and It's simplistic as ever. He said, well, don't drink. (laughs) Later on, I went to him and I told him, Jim, I'm having a problem with honesty. He said, well, tell the truth. I had to spend a lot of time explaining things to Jim, because he didn't understand, and I guess it was during the, the months between my first meeting in January and my sobriety in um, in May, um, I had, had the big book, and I bought it when I was there in the first meeting, and I brought it home and would occasionally take it out and read it of an evening. And I would uh, have a big book in one hand and a glass of scotch in the other. And this, by the way, is not the best way to go through the big book. <laughs> but I would sit there, I was trying to get the essence of it, and I heard at the first these this guy, Bill W., was the founder of Bill's story. I'll find out how he got sober. And I'm reading, and he's in the England with the other kids drinking at the country club. And then he goes to the military school and he's drinking again. And he's over in Europe at World War One. he's drinking. He comes back, he's on the stock market, he's drinking. I said, well, Where does he get sober? <laughs> and he finally goes into the hospital and says, Okay, he's getting sober. He's in the hospital. And then he tells he saw the wind and the lights. Guess i got to wait for the wind and the light to come through here. As soon as it does, I'll put this drink down. But having gone through the big book the first time, I had also taken one of those Evan Woods speed reading courses. I went through that big book in about two and a half hours. And I went back the second time, and I was making notes in the margin because at two weeks over I thought I had, you know, some good ideas for the next edition. (laughs) I may be the only pigeon in the history of this program whose sponsor took away his big (laughs) book. He told me to go to meetings and listen, and he let me know when I was ready to read. <laughs> and of course, the truth was, I read the big book like the Opposition Brief. You know, I'm, I see the parts that don't apply. And, <laughs> yeah, that one's not on all fours. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to him and I said, You have to go to these meetings. I said, how many, how, how many of these meetings do I have to go to? He said, I'll get back to you on that. (laughs) A few days later, he'd come to me. and said, you know, we've been talking, and uh, in view of your obvious intelligence and extreme education, we figured you ought to go to seven meetings a week. (laughs) I said, that's every day. He see, you're getting better already. (laughs) But Jim got me working the steps, and uh, I began a serious effort at the program at that time. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer hardly thought it worthwhile to spend much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid for this fiddle? He said. Who start the bidding for me? A dollar then? Who make it two? Two dollars? Who make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going and going. But no, from the back of the room an older man stepped forward and picked up the bow, and wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening its loosened string, he played a melody pure and rich as caroling angels sing. The music finished, and the auctioneer, in a voice that was hushed and low, said, What am I bid for this fine violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars. Who make it two? Two thousand. Who make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The crowd stood and cheered, but some of them said, We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Quick came the reply the touch of the master's hand my God began to touch me and get in touch with me by working these steps and dealing with you people and I got here and I I, took the, I called them the 12 steps but in my case there were the 12 missteps that <laughs> I could admit I was powerless over alcohol but I didn't think my life was unmanageable I had had a, a streak of bad luck but it wasn't unmanageable after all. I had five D, four DUI arrests. No convictions. <laughs> See, I, I made a point of always carrying a half empty half pint under my seat. So if I did get stopped, I'd grab the keys in one hand, the pint in the other, get out, polish off the pint in front of the cop. And later on, it would be impossible to tell whether I flunked the breathalyzer because of drinking I did before I stopped driving or after I stopped driving. (laughs) See, I was insane. I wasn't stupid. (laughs) Don't try that in Georgia anymore. Um there's a law now that if you're tested you're presumed to have been that way for at least a couple hours it's called Dick's Law <laughs> not really Really not really and I got that second step and I prayed there for only as much sanity as I could handle I thought I had considered myself a believer because I held the opinion that there was a God I thought that made me a believer. I didn't live or act like there was a God, but I held that opinion. And I might have been a functional agnostic, Uh, never be an atheist. In fact, I always felt sorry for atheists because they have nothing to holler out in the middle of sex. they sit there absolutely silent, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: and I took that third step and made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And I hear people, when they talk about the third step, they're always talking about, well, I turned it over and then I took it back. And, well, I turned it over again and then I took it back the operative word in the third step is not turn it over the operative word is make a decision and a decision is just that in our case it's a decision to take the rest of the steps but it's a decision, it's not an action the first three steps are all mental functions admit, believe, decide Uh, nothing really to do there's a friend of mine who's a pilot in this program he he tells me on a Flight from Atlanta to San Francisco, the plane in terms of hairline accurate on course is only on course about 2% of the time. The other 98% of the time it's correcting. So we make a decision, all we're doing is setting the course. There's no guarantee we're going to be specifically on course every moment of the time. We may like that plane only be on course 2% of the time, but we know what the course is, and the other 98% of the time we can be working toward correcting it, and that's how it's had to work with me, because I've never been totally on course all of the time, or even close to half of the time. I uh, had a sponsor, that sponsor came to me, and he, see the first couple of months I kind of wallowed around in the first three steps, and the fellowship in July he was going on vacation and he came to me and he says, do your fourth step when I get back in early August we're going to do your fifth step I said four step? he said yeah you got a lot of anger and resentment and I didn't think I had any anger and resentment in in fact it really pissed me off when he told me that (laughs)
1: so
0: I did my first searchless and fearful moral inventory. (laughs) And I've done a bunch since then. There were some old timers around at the time that told me, only take one fourth step. I don't know why you take all the other steps repeatedly, but the fourth step, you're taking inventories all the time if you're doing it right. And the tenth step is a good dusting and cleaning step to get rid of the daily stuff, but... Once every year or two, you know, you got to pull that refrigerator away from the wall and see what's under there. <laughs> pull that sofa away, see what's behind it, lift those cushions out. you got to do a good fourth step every once in a while. You can't get by on ten steps exclusively. And the fifth step is just, uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature, and I had to do that. And I uh, admitted to God and myself I could not find another human being so I used my sponsor. <laughs> and uh, the fifth steps I, I was always just the one that keeps you, you you do That's where you don't, most people don't do a fourth step. They read the fifth step. <laughs> oh no. And uh, I, with the the last 30 plus years I guess I've heard a dozen or so fifth steps and they're all the same there's not a unique scene in the world you know I, I think I've heard everything except maybe cannibalism you know <laughs> <laughs> and I had the same hesitation when I started you know I, I didn't want to do that first step and I didn't want to do that fifth step and I uh, I was raised to believe you should try anything once, except incest and folk dancing. <laughs> so I did the fifth step, and you know the good part about it is when it's over with, you haven't told everybody everything, but you've told one person, and it's no longer inside of you. You're not taking that defensive posture, so nobody sees it. You've let it out, and you can open yourself up to other members of the fellowship and to the world at large, because you're not protecting it anymore. One of the guys I've sponsored over the years is a, uh, a Methodist minister, and he told me he thought one of the biggest mistakes of the Reformation was the abandonment of the practice of confession as a regular habit. And uh, in fact, when they it's when they stop regular confessions. That we started seeing psychiatrists. You got know, to tell somebody, you know. So it uh, it 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 helps just to get it off your chest. And and one guy told me, my sponsor told me, I said, you know, even the Pope has a confessor. You know, who do you think you are? You know. So I uh, I said we had to get into the sixth step, entirely ready to remove those defects of character and it says ready in my case I I wish it were another mental function but no it's ready in the law we have a phrase ready willing and able there are three different things and ready just means you've done the work you've done what's necessary in advance I was a DCM for my home group my home neighborhood and went to the state assembly and I had an alternate DCM he was an engineer and, you know, kind of obsessive. <laughs> we had a 9 a.m. meeting scheduled for Sunday morning in Macon, Georgia. And uh, he's calling me at quarter to seven. I was willing to go to that meeting at quarter to seven, but I was not yet ready. <laughs> I had not yet gotten out of my pajamas, taken a shower, done anything. I hadn't done the things necessary to go to that meeting. Despite my willingness, I was not yet ready. And there's a separate things. Just remember those. They're total different. And that seventh step we humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings. It does not read, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, and he did.
1: doesn't say that
0: i have most of the shortcomings i came here with the only difference is they don't run my life anymore it used to be if you came up and told me you didn't like my tie that gave me the right to burn down your house with your wife one the kitchen i've learned to take things more proportion now I, uh, you know, I'm on Money Expressway in Atlanta, and some little old lady cuts me off. I'll still speed up to get up next to her to give her the finger. <laughs> the only difference now is, I, after 34 years, I don't find it necessary to follow her past my exit. <laughs> a little enlightened self-interest sets in there you know. <laughs> and then Step said we made a list of all persons we had harmed they became willing to make amends to them all and you make that list in writing you make it in writing that's what I tell you you don't have to make it in writing for yourself you know how you've done wrong you've taken that four step you put it in writing so you can review it with your sponsor or some trusted member before you go fumbling out there to deal with Earth people, which you're totally unequipped to do at this point in your sobriety, you write it down and you review it, so you know what amends have to be made, how they should be offered, how somebody should be approached. Maybe somebody should not be approached right now. He may, you know, still have the knife in his back. Uh, <laughs> And in that ninth step, it, it tells us that uh made direct amends to people. Now, it says amends. It does not say apologies. My sponsor called me up on that one. He said, you're a lawyer. What does amend mean? I said, it means to change. Right. Change. If you come home drunk and knock over your neighbor's mailbox, you don't owe him an apology. You owe him a mailbox. <laughs> Build him a mailbox. That's your amend. In a a tenth step, I continued to take a personal inventory. And when I was wrong, promptly admit it. I used to read that as if I was wrong. (laughs) That saved a lot of admitting. (laughs) Uh, just like they say, you know, contempt prior to investigation. Uh, contempt prior to investigation will save you a lot of investigating time. You know? <laughs> when we got through that eleven step, it's the longest and for me the powerhouse step in the in the 12 steps. So saw so through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. And... Uh, I was raised in Catholic schools. We knew a lot of prayers. We had a lot of prayers for We had prayers for everything. You know, prayers for the men in the service, prayer for the president, prayer for the crops. I grew up in New Jersey. We didn't have any crops. Guy <laughs> in the corner growing marijuana. But,
1: <laughs>
0: but one thing I, I found particularly helpful we'll speak about later, but uh, I... Uh, It says in the 12 and 12 in the treatment of the 11th step, it says, even in times of sorrow when the hand of God seemed heavy or even unjust, new lessons in life were learned and more courage was uncovered to know eventually that His will is best for us. And that 12th step says, that a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. It was not, as most people frequently interpret it, anything similar to that hot flash that Bill had in the hospital. The old-timers referred to the wind and the lightning as, as Bill's hot flash. And uh, that was not it, because when he got to Akron, uh, when he held back on his experience to help Bob, he did not think back on that night in the hospital. He thought back on all those drugs he'd been working with for the last six months. And it couldn't have been a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, because the steps hadn't even been created yet. And Bill may have taken one or two of them, including surrender, but that was about it. But those, uh, the spiritual awakening we talk about is the result of what we do here. And then he carried a message. Uh, Everybody's had a different experience in carrying a message, and a lot of people talk about getting those 12-step phone calls at midnight and 1 in the morning. In my early sobriety, <coughs> my calls used to come at supper time, and we had four kids at the time. Well, I mentioned we're Catholic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, supper time with four kids in the house can be kind of hectic. And I'd get a call, and if the guy seemed halfway all right, I'd try to meet him around 7.30, and if that were good, I'd take him to an 8 o'clock meeting, and that would be good. I made this announcement to my wife, and she said, Well, before you go, can you help get the kids ready for bed? "Eh, Sure. You ever try and convince a 2- and a 4-year-old that just because they're putting their pajamas on now does not mean they have to go to bed right now? Come on, get your pajamas on. It's not that day. <laughs> I know you're going to go to bed later and put your pajamas on. You're going to make me go to bed. No, I'm not going to make you go to bed. Just put your pajamas on. We'll go to bed later.
1: Mommy, he's going to make me certain.
0: God damn it, put your pajamas on. <laughs> and I'd be leaving the house, and she said, when do you think you'll be back? And I said, as soon as I give this son of a bitch some of my serenity. <laughs> A wonderful wife of mine, by the way, is in the audience tonight, and last August she celebrated one year in this program. <laughs> the, uh, she'll be around after the meeting. We've been married, uh, well, going on 44 years, and I've been sober 34 years, and if you'll speak with her after the meeting, she'll tell you how I got through the first 10 years on Charm. <laughs> I still call her my current wife. Uh, I find it keeps her on her toes. <laughs> I do that 12-step, and I guess, you know, I sponsor people the way I was sponsored. I I guess you parent the way you were parented, I don't know, but I I have people I sponsor. And the, the people I sponsor tend to have less than six months or more than five years. Somewhere around six months they get sensitive. Had hey, one guy I was sponsoring, he was doing well sober-wise, but I kept telling him, no, you know, you ought to get a job. <laughs> I said, yeah, I have something to do between meetings, you know. <laughs> and I'd see him all the time. You get a job? No, you not get a job yet. Yeah? And I finally went to him after a month or two of pestering him. You get a, yeah, I got a job? He said, where are you working? He said, Bed Bath and & Beyond, and... I asked if he were in the beyond department (laughs) (laughs) he fired me got another sponsor (laughs) but the uh, the program has helped not just in my own sobriety but in life which is what it's supposed to do Uh, when I got sober, uh, I had gotten a job with a, a company that had gave seminars to doctors on how to run the business end of a medical practice. and They wanted to add a lawyer to that mix, so I did. And it so happens that doctors were the first of the really small businessmen to start getting into mini computers and laptops. And we developed a, a process to help them acquire it because a small business like that was for the first time a a business that did not have internal programmers and system people on their payroll to advise them so we offered that service and, and because they were doctors they knew everything <laughs> and they do it on their own and i'd get a call a month later you know can you get me out of this contract and i tried or two or three of those cases and in the process of trying them you learn what you have to learn to try a case and after three or four cases of computer law litigation, I looked around and I said, You know, I know more about this now than 99% of the attorneys in the country. I'm an expert. <laughs> and I'd, uh, people would, you know, come and ask me, You know, Gee, how'd you get in, into computer law? I said, Well, I'd, I'd like to say it was a matter of astute career planning. But really what you do is you you almost drink yourself to death. (laughs) And you scramble for any job you can get. And I wind up those early months uh, with folks in the program that come, you're a lawyer, you you can, you help. And I wind up spending the morning in depositions with systems engineers trying to get them to speak English. And in the afternoon, some guy from the program who was, you know, ten weeks sober, and something had happened eight weeks ago, was coming home to roost, and I'd go into court with this three-piece suit and this gray hair and his voice, and I'd stand here and address the court. Yes, Your Honor, the defendant was running naked down Highway 92 <laughs> <laughs> with a fistful of Q-tips up his butt. <laughs> Insisting he was the Easter Bunny, <laughs> but we do have an explanation, Your Honor. <laughs> Sing Peter Cottontail for his honor. <laughs> so you you do what you can. I'm semi-retired now, and I put my name on a public defender list just to keep myself off the
1: streets.
0: (laughs) Not all the problems are, people have problems other than alcohol, and one of the guys I tried to help, we kept him out of jail, got him on probation, but about a month before I got here, the court sent me a letter they were going to revoke his probation. (laughs) It turns out he punched out his anger management counselor. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I get these files, and <laughs> I'm reading them, you're doing this just for me, aren't you, guy? <laughs> yeah. Another guy had a felony quantity of marijuana in his bedroom closet and hadn't paid rent and got an eviction order. The sheriff wrote him and said, if your belongings are not removed by next Tuesday, we will be there to remove them. And This would have behooved most people to move the marijuana to a less discoverable spot. <laughs> well, this guy was pretty complete burnout. And, uh, he had a full six pack, but he didn't have that little plastic thing that holds it all together. Right? <laughs> he gets a letter from the sheriff saying if her belongings are not removed, we'll be there and he should have removed him, but he was at a friend's house sleeping on off the night before shows up about 11 o'clock Tuesday morning to find the sheriff and his belongings out on the curb my client walked over to by the way, he was resplendent in thong slippers cutoffs, and a t-shirt that read poetically and prophetically Shit happens. (laughs) He walks over to the deputy, points to the marijuana with surprise and delight, and said, Where did you find that? I've been looking for that for weeks. The sheriff immediately accessorized his outfit with a pair of, a pair of handcuffs. Took him in, and I met him a few weeks later. Again, a time served drug evaluation. We're walking out of the courtroom, and he asks, in all innocence, Who do I see to get my stuff back? I said, What? And that cost me $800, you know. So I gave him my card. You tell the sheriff I said to give that back to you. (laughs) I got a call two days later. The sheriff said no. (laughs) Five minutes after that, I got a call from a deputy. Skelly, you son of a bitch, why are you sending these guys down here telling <laughs> Well, he wouldn't believe me. I thought maybe he'd believe you. But these things happen. And one incident that kind of makes a lot of the other things worthwhile there was a girl named Pat Am. Um, she went to a group called 8111 across the river from me. And she. One went to those meetings, but she was living in a halfway house for women. And one day she took me aside after the meeting and said she had gotten a letter from the district attorney to go down for an interview. And I found out what happened apparently at the end of her drinking and drugging she had become pregnant. And because of her drinking and drugging she had miscarried the baby. And because she was taken to the hospital by law enforcement, the file made its way to the DA's office and some hotshot young attorney decided he was going to pursue it under a Georgia fetal drug and fetal alcohol law they had. And he wrote her a letter telling her to come down for the interview. And the first thing I told her, of course, that she was not going to go down for that interview. And I did some research and sent a letter to the DA telling him that the um, I had researched other states and. They were still going to have to prove intent. They'd have to prove that she knew she was pregnant when she was taking the drugs. and They might also have to prove that she knew this particular drug she was taking was capable of permeating the placenta and damaging the fetus. And he dropped the matter. Uh, never heard from him again. I guess he decided to go after some more defenseless woman. And, It was a, only a couple of weeks after that I found out that in fact, despite all her difficulties, had graduated college with a very high grade point average, had applied for, and was being admitted to the Georgia Medical School in Augusta. Uh, she would not have been admitted if she had ever had a criminal record. And I didn't see her for a while. She went off to school. Uh, I'd see an email catch her on vacation time. She cruised by 8111. And about two or three years ago, another woman, a doctor with my home group, used to be my home group, she's now a neurologist in Savannah, she had apparently shared a room with uh, Pat when they were at medical school and wrote her and told her. And Pat wrote me this letter, which just kind of makes up for a lot of other things that don't go right. She addressed me as she always did. It's my dear blessed and profane hero, Dick. <laughs> They got a call from Susan last week, and after her return from Marietta, she called to say how she spoke with you at some length and reports that you are, thank God, still the same. <laughs> when we last met at 8111 a few years back, I had just graduated. and was in the process of moving to Kentucky for my residency in pediatrics. You probably thought I was either trying to strangle you with hugs or drown you with tears. You seemed a bit embarrassed but told me to show my gratitude by using my skills Occasionally without pay to help others you told me that it's a rare blessing from God for people like us to be put in the position to do that I can never forget how you did that for me I pulled out your three page lawyer letter to the Atlanta authorities and I read it again it was at once strong and elegant and poetic your explanation to me however was less elegant and less poetic as you summarized it I threatened them with more shit than they could shovel. (laughs) It's nice to have a bilingual attorney. (laughs) So i tried to follow your example and direction. There's no way we can pay back what we owe. The only repayment is to pass it on. One weekend a month, we take a volunteer van to Harlan and Verda and Everts. Well, baby care and vaccination and general pediatrics. What the hell is that? Thirteen years ago, I wrote a letter, and today, a couple of hundred kids in Appalachia have a pediatrician. What is that? That was not. That was not me. When I wrote that letter, I was an arrogant, wise-ass defense attorney trying to get one up on a prosecutor. (laughs) My motives were not there, but God took that behavior and did something with it that was not part of my intention. So the opportunity comes, you take it and do what you can. You never know. You just never know. Now, my recovery is not all that different from other people's. When I first got here, I had lost the wife and the family a home and most of the money and I hurt and I cried and I didn't drink and I went to meetings and when I was two years sober we found out my son Brendan was a retarded child and needed open heart surgery and I hurt and I prayed and I didn't drink and I went to meetings and when I was Three and five years sober, two more children were born to a reconstructed marriage. And I shared that joy, and I didn't drink, and I went to meetings. And when I was eight years sober, my youngest son Kevin was diagnosed with cancer, and leukemia at five years old. And I hurt, and I cried, and I didn't drink, and I went to meetings. And I was 13 years sober, he was declared cured of his cancer and I shared that joy and I didn't drink. And I went to when I was 20 years sober my oldest son Brendan died at age 22. And I hurt and I prayed and I didn't drink and I went to meetings. And in the years since then I've had cancer and a heart attack. My daughters have gotten married and I've been there to give them away including the only daughter who knows it of a drinking father. My mom died. Good things and bad things have happened, and each time I I didn't drink, and I went to meetings. When I was 29 years sober, my son Kevin, this cancer survivor, had met and married a girl he met at a camp for kids with cancer, and I was there to participate in their wedding. When I was and I shared that joy and I didn't drink and I went to meetings and I was 30 years sober this disease came to my home again and tried to take the love of my life, my wife of 30 years, 40 years and I heard and I prayed and I didn't drink and I went to meetings. And at 32 years sober uh, she found this program and I prayed and I was joyful, and I didn't drink, and I went to meetings. And I guess when she celebrated her first year of sobriety, within a day or two of that, we had our first grandchild. That cancer survivor son and his cancer survivor wife gave us our first grandchild. And he shared that joy, and I didn't drink, and I went to meetings. It's just that simple. Just that simple not easy but simple and they tell us here that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free but first it will make you miserable <laughs> and our job is to hold on to that truth through the misery until the freedom comes and we're not bound to recognize truth here We're only bound to be honest. I only have one truth I have to hold on to, and that's the truth with which I began my remarks to you this evening. And that truth is that my name is Dick, and I'm an alcoholic.